Initiating launch sequence. Hi, I'm Ian Black, and this is Ready for Launch. Three, two, one, zero. Welcome back, listeners. This week, I've got Zach LaBerge on the show. He's a young Canadian entrepreneur with dreams of revolutionizing the way rental businesses operate. We talk about joining the movement of the sharing economy, how we got into dropshipping at the age of 10, uh, the key to successful Instagram marketing for your pet, finding the right team and developing a network, what it's like building a venture-backed business while you're still meant to be in school, and the 51% rule for getting investment, and a bunch more stuff. So listen up and enjoy the show. Zach LaBerge, welcome to Ready for Launch. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm sure this is going to be a fascinating conversation. You've been building startups since you were 10 years old, I believe. And now at 16, you're on at least your third or fourth business. And if what I've read today is correct, you've even just been selected for Atlantic Canada's 30 under 30 innovators, which is pretty impressive. So why don't you kick us off by telling our audience What's your latest business called and what's unique about it? Yeah, so um, oh, my company's Frontier. Uh, essentially, so we're a, we're a SaaS platform for the rental industry. So we provide rental businesses with you know, all the tools they need to run their platform. So we're essentially like the Shopify for rentals. What would a typical rental business be? Like who's using your platform? Yeah, so... The thing with the rental industry is that, you know, this share, the sharing economy is this really awesome 21st century movement. Um, but rental businesses, they still live in like the 90s when it comes to their technology. Everything's, you know, something's pen and paper. Maybe they have some spreadsheets, uh, but that's pretty much it when it comes to technology. So we can we work with normally rental businesses, um, maybe either franchise handful of stores, but normally they're kind of one off um, rental businesses with you know a couple hundred items to rent. Uh, but we're pretty industry agnostic, so it doesn't really matter what they rent. Um, it's mostly just kind of size, um, size wise. But yeah, we're really, um, we're just really trying to revolutionize this this industry that's been, you know, um, pretty uh, a little bit in the stone age um, in terms of tech for the last little bit. But we're hoping to kind of bring them kind of the future with with some really great technology. Where did this idea come from? I've always loved this uh, the sharing economy. It's always just something that I've always. Really been interested in like Airbnb and Uber and those startups. Um, it's kind of those are the startups I've grown up with, right? So it's um, oftentimes you know the industries we liked are kind of shaped by the startups and kind of consumer uh, facing products that we grew up with. So for that, that would be like Airbnb, and I was always really you know, interested in them. And uh, in January of twenty twenty, uh, I came up with this idea that you know let's build this peer to peer marketplace for renting, and we raised sixty five thousand. US in September of 2021, um, built out the product and launched in May of 20, uh, May or May of 2021, raised money in September of 2020, and then, you know, launched, grew to, in four months, we grew to nine cities, 2,500 users and 3,200 items on our platform. And we had gone through one acquisition. Um, and then really, I started talking to rental businesses and realizing, wow, there's these businesses want to be a part of this movement as well, but they need a more turnkey solution. So in August of 2021, we pivoted to focus just on rental businesses. And then we acquired Resale, which gave us access to this really great proprietary software um, uh, to just optimize what we were doing even more. And, you know, in September, we raised, you know, opened our round of funding. And, you know, currently in November, we're aiming to wrap up uh, pre-seed round of funding in the next couple of weeks. 
so that's just a full timeline on on everything right well uh, yeah that's an in-depth timeline uh i'd love to come back to some of the investment pieces and the pivots a bit later but let's like rewind a little bit mm-hmm. how did you get into entrepreneurship does this run in the family what got you interested in it yeah so for in my lifetime at least my parents never had any startups or, or anything um but they had always been you know in kind of the the business world a little bit and i had grown up watching shows like um you know dragon's den or uh which you know dragon's den or shark tank for for people in the us i watched that as well and just those kind of shows really made me you know interested in entrepreneurship and the idea that you, know, you can build something really interesting and build something important um and then I think when I was around 10 or uh, 11 or so, I watched uh, this documentary on YouTube about Ben Pasternak and how he had, you know, at 16, uh, raised $500,000 in funding and moved to New York to pursue a startup full time. And that was like, you know, that was the dream for me. I was really interested in that. So that's really where, you know, this idea of starting my own company and, you know, building something really great and then having that freedom in kind of this entrepreneurial life uh, really resonated with me. So. You're, you told me before the show, you're based in Halifax, Canada. Is is part of that dream for you to get out of Halifax, Canada and copy this guy you saw and head to New York or some other big tech community? I think that that dream was when I was younger and I didn't really, you know, the big cities, when, when you're younger, wherever you're from, you always think about like you know, the bigger cities or going to like this really, these really big cities. But you know, I've been to New York um, and, you know, the tech ecosystem there is amazing. It's really great, but in Halifax, we're in Atlantic Canada. We're building a really strong tech ecosystem here. So I think that you know, I'm you know, really proud of what, what we're building here, and really want to just stay here and be a part of it. This isn't your first business. How did your other businesses lead you to where you are now? I think as an entrepreneur, everything is like stages, and you start something, and then you kind of are able to learn from that, and then build something greater or just with more experience and more kind of wisdom behind it. And I think that's also why, you know, venture capital companies normally uh, it's, it's said that kind of you're more likely, your startups you know, way more likely, almost twice more likely to succeed if you failed before because you have that prior experience. Uh, so I started you know, my first company when I was 10 and I sold consumer electronics um, off Alibaba and did drop shipping. Um, and then that kind of taught me about e-commerce and you know, that was my first little business. And then I went into manufacturing dog treats because um, my dog was famous. He had 5,000 followers on Instagram. So I just thought, you know, I, I could capitalize on that and, and build something really great. Um, and then, you know, COVID shut that down. But through that, I learned how to actually sell product in person and trade shows or uh, and kind of events and farmers markets and all of that sort of thing. And even manufacturing and negotiating with kind of packaging suppliers. So um, that was really interesting. And then Frenter was, you know, through Frenter, we you know we pivoted and through customer discovery learned that there's a better market opportunity. But Frenter in the early days really taught me about actual technological development. And since then, kind of my my lens of things has evolved and you know understand really about customer discovery and product market fit and how research plays a massive part of entrepreneurship. It's not just, you know, think of an idea uh, and don't immediately jump into building it, but even though I do agree with that kind of idea of things, um, I also agree that there's a lot of research that goes into building up companies to really find that product market fit. I love it when I hear the word research. It's a big part of what I do in my day-to-day, but 
I really have to quickly dig into your dog treat startup. I'm a big, I'm a big dog fan. What is the key to getting your dog famous on Instagram? So I, I first learned about like Facebook advertising, um, but I knew that you know a lot of companies do Facebook advertising. That's not really, um, that's not really special. But for me, I tried to you know with with dogs when you when you go out and you do some Facebook marketing and you're not asking for anything and you're just like just posting a cute picture of your dog that our conversion rate. Um, I'm just trying to find the, the actual picture now because I remember our kind of conversions for clicks were like a 10th of a cent per, per click, which normally it's, you know, maybe uh, seven cents, 18 cents, or even in kind of the couple dollar range per click. But you know, for us, we were having you no know, such high conversions. And then you just started gaining followers. I think he's at just under 15,000 followers now. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, then kind of through that, I was like, you know, um, I learned about Nala Cat, who's the most followed cat on, on Instagram. And she had launched a pet food company. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I could do that for my dog. Um, and then you know, started started working on that. So you feel like the success of the adverts was from the fact that you weren't selling anything and you were just advertising your Instagram account. Is that right? Yeah, I mean... A bunch of people do it differently. A lot of people just advertise their posts and advertise pictures. I just went on my picture that was most liked um, and just advertised that. And then that's just, people thought it was great. Got a lot of conversions there and then ended up getting you know, a lot of follows from that. Um, and that's just, that's kind of how it started. I mean, it, everything works differently for everybody. Um, but when you are, people are just so numb nowadays to Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising, because it's everywhere, right? Like I... You know YouTube ads, all that. It's very hard for you to stand out. So, at least a couple of years ago, when I did it, it was just you know don't sell anything, just post kind of my dog, which I think was a little bit new for people because all they had seen was blasting with buy this product, buy this, and this was just a picture of a dog that showed up on their page. So I think that was probably the the difference there. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting insight, and I wonder have you been able to translate that idea of standing out to how you market Frenta if you if you're you know doing that kind of marketing yet um yeah so when we were business to consumer I did think about that so we had a goal of a thousand users in our first month which was pretty ambitious um for a startup that hadn't done you know any pre-marketing before launch so we launched first week I think I got maybe eight users so I was like okay gotta go back to the drawing board here and really figure it out um then I you know again launched a an marketing campaign called the you know, take back summer campaign and essentially we were promoting you know free content things to do during the summer and then how Frenter could help you rent those and you know first week from that 487 users signed up uh, the next week 500 and then we ended up getting you know just over a thousand users that month um and that was kind of back to the idea of like standing out and really you know creating something that was a little bit different um, and not just, you know, sign up for Frenter because we let you rent things. It was you know, promoting a different product and then showing how Frenter could really provide you with value um, kind of through these activities. So um, it also, it worked well with kind of the, the current circumstance with, with COVID. Now people wanted to get outside and we had just lifted uh, the ban on kind of, you know, uh, being allowed outside and to do outside activities. So it also helped a little bit there, but yeah. You started a dog treats business. You were manufacturing dog treats. You're now in a SaaS business. These are all very different skills in terms of like building a business. How do you approach learning a, an industry that you might not know anything about yet? 
I think I was 13 when I was manufacturing dog treats. So it wasn't really my like forte. It wasn't really what I knew a lot about. I would say the greatest thing is you find people that know a lot more than you and everybody know, you know, knows a lot more than me at, at a lot of things. And I just find those people because those people, you know, we're, we're a team at Frenter, right? It's, it's everybody kind of helping me towards the same vision. And we're all super passionate about this goal. So I found people that were you know, way better than me in sales, which is Alex Mills, our COO, way better than me at technology, which is, you know, uh, Nick, our CTO, and we all just kind of work really well with you know sales, technology, and vision, and pushing our product. And then we all kind of uh, that's how we've been able to you know, scale quickly and you know build a, a great team and kind of network. Um, just find people that are a lot smarter than you at things. And you know, there's somebody that you know you're normally people are good at really good at one thing. You know, maybe you can be decent at a couple things, but if you're really good at one thing, find everybody else that's really good at everything else. Um, that would be kind of my best advice there. That's good advice. What is it you think you're really good at then? <laughs> uh, I am. Um, uh, I, I hate giving myself compliments on things, but I think my thing is just um, I'm a pretty uh, I'm a pretty positive guy in terms of things, and I think that maybe maybe just building a team and getting people really rallied towards the same goal and really be be kind of a people's person and talking to people and talking to businesses and also talking to investors and really pushing, keeping us on track on our vision. That's probably where, where, where my specialty is because really being, you know, there, there has to be, you know, the operations and sales are super important and I'm, you know, not a guy, like I'm a guy that wants to jump into things right away. So having kind of, that's, you know, that, that's what I'm good at and kind of back to, you know, my team, having people that can then support that with, you know, on yourself, just a guy that jumps into things and is really enthusiastic and wants to scale and knows what he wants to scale is, you know, okay. But then having people that complement that, like an operations person that, you know, I know where I want to be in two years, three years, this, and, you know, Alex is here to help me say, okay, what are we going to do tomorrow, the next day, the year after, and like every day kind of so on and so forth. And I'm like, okay, what's next month? What's in one year, two years, that sort of thing. Um, and just kind of complimenting each other on that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that that optimism is something I see is like repeatedly a requirement for for founders. It's it's the thing that gets you through the hard times. So I'm I'm not surprised at all you you mentioned that first in your skill sets. But like you said, you've got a bunch of other people around you. How did you find these people, and how early on in your process did you start to build out that team when you were thinking about Frenta? So. Really, I wanted to build a team right away, um, and I kind of had, you know, right when I came up with the idea, I was like, I want to bring a bunch of people on, but what I learned is to really find good people, um, you either have to, like, know them when you're starting off a company, because when you have no money and your company hasn't really gone from an idea yet, it's tough to find really great people at that stage, so probably the first year of Frontier, it was just me, um, just this you know, optimistic 14-year-old that then I, I raised some funding built out the product. Um, and then once I had a little bit more traction there, I, I met Nick on LinkedIn. We worked on a previous kind of project together, um, which is on my LinkedIn, which is in Cryptify. And then you know, I said, saw that this guy was amazing uh, at building out tech and kind of really complimented my optimism, which he's a really big realist and really helps like cut through kind of the, the fog and kind of cut through the noise. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of where I I met Nick and brought him on, and that was probably all, that was almost a year from from starting off 
uh, by myself to bring on employee number one. And now we're, we'll be, uh, we'll be employee number eight by the end of, by the end of November. So it's kind of, it's moved along a little bit since August and I hope to keep hiring and bringing on people with more experience than me and really just really smart people. What did your role look like when it was just you? Like, were you building the software and things like that too? Or would you hire agencies and stuff like that? Yeah, so when we started off, I didn't know how to code or anything like that. So we outsourced development. Um, that's why I raised a little bit of like kind of funding. Um, and then uh, it was mostly me just, I was doing marketing, <laughs> sales, um, you know, work, still working on the product when I learned how to code and do that, working on product, um, VC fundraising, talking to angels. And it, I was lucky because it was over the summer. So it gave me a lot of time. It, it was tiring, you know, for a 15 year old kid to kind of do all that. And that's why I knew like, I got to bring on other people because they're going to be, you know, I'm spending you know, all day doing you know, 10 different things that I'm not super experienced in. So bring on other people that knew more than me about that uh, was, was really important. Yeah, let's talk about uh, schooling for a little bit. You're, you're the first guest I've had who's uh, still in school. You obviously, you have a lot of time in summer, but what what does your day look like once you're back in class? That, that was interesting. I went to my first day of school this year and then never went back. Um, <laughs> I, switched to a, I switched to an online school curriculum, so I still do kind of all my classes, but I pretty much I get up maybe, uh, depending on the day, seven-ish, um, go to the office for eight or nine uh, on most days, depending if I have kind of an early call with Nick and I'm up till like three, I might stay home a little later, but um, then you know, come to work, work from here, do some schooling sometimes kind of in, either in lunch or later in the day and then come home, you know, 5.36 PM. So that's kind of what, what my day looks like. But I, I work out of, we have an office in Halifax. Um, we're in, we're a Volta resident, which Volta is in a, a non-for-profit kind of startup program accelerator they invest in startups they um give startups kind of spaces to work so we have about 250 square feet of space just to kind of work from that's that we can call our own which is really great do you see further education in your future or you know is it all about business for you you don't need university things like that yeah we'll we'll just we're just gonna put that on the back burner for now i guess it's um it's kind of it's I think about it. I think the university is really great for um, certain professions. I think in startup life, um, it's it's helpful. Um, but if you're kind of a startup founder like me, you want to surround yourself with kind of university educated people. But I, I don't think necessarily, you know, uh, you need to be um, if you can just find the right people that have the background and like have backgrounds and you know, soft, software development, like taking you know, marketing courses or have degrees in marketing and sales um that's probably um, more what i'd be focused on than necessarily going to school and getting the degrees myself but i understand it was super important for a lot a lot of people so not not dismissing that might just not be a thing for for me uh in my life yeah that makes sense um yeah i came from a family where i feel like it was probably just expected that i would go to university it wasn't really a question do you feel like your family are supportive of whatever path you take and you know are they encouraging of your businesses um yeah i mean i i don't think i would be kind of you know at the position i am um if my family wasn't super supportive i think uh especially you know my parents are both they both have you know university educated with kind of doctorates um and 
or uh, I think, or at least kind of, you know, master's degrees, right? So there's both kind of, there's a high level education background. So when we first kind of talked about it, um, you know, I had said, you know, this is really what I want to do with my life and I want to pursue it. And they said, you know, okay, if that's what you want to do, then, you know, depending on where you are at the end of grade 12, we'll, we'll have a conversation then. Um, because of course, you know, if, if there's no startup at the end of grade 12, it, it makes sense to go to university. So, but they're super supportive in terms of, you know, helping me get set up with online school and um, helping me kind of, uh, you know, yeah, manage kind of all the schooling because I really needed someone on my side and in my corner there because that's a t it's a tough conversation for uh, I think I was fifteen fifteen year old to have with like with their school for that so I really needed my my parents my parents there. Mm. Yeah, you so you felt resistance from your school letting you do it rather than your family. Yeah, I mean, not less resistance, more like it's something that they were just a. Uh, they didn't really have any, any experience with that would probably be it. Like just when someone offers you kind of a, a new thing that you haven't done before and it needs a lot of accommodation, um, then they were just a little bit hesitant to it. But once they, you know, kind of saw what I was actually doing um, and that it wasn't just like, you know, I was starting like a lemonade stand or like on the side of my street, you know, I think that's, they, then they kind of changed their mind and realized, okay, you know, he's not dropping out because, or not, not dropping out, but like, he's not trying to change, you know, is schooling because he's doesn't want to go to school. He's trying to change it because he's pursuant of kind of a different, uh, different future and like a different uh, uh, path. So you quite proudly state your age on LinkedIn, and I think it's awesome to see such young entrepreneurs. And I'm sure you have a lot of people who are like very uh, kind of supportive of you. But have you ever felt any of the opposite? Like your age has been an impediment to you reaching your goals in business. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely sometimes normal, the reason I just put it there is because what I noticed, I'd get in a lot of investor calls and they'd be like, you know, so what is your university education? I'd be like, <laughs> still undecided. And then that, and the topic page would come up. So I was just like, might as well advertise it because eventually it's an asset, right? It's, it's, um, it's like new experience and a new lens on the world, which I think also helps with positivity and, and kind of. No, thinking really like being focused because you haven't gone through that life where someone knows told you, no, you're going to fail. It's not going to work. So you still have that kind of positive uh, lens when it comes to business. Um, so sometimes I've done accelerator programs. I've done, uh, I've been going to interviews for some pretty great you know, kind of top level accelerators. And when I've gotten to the interview, they love the idea. They bring me to the interview. And as soon as the age comes up, there's sometimes I've noticed in a couple of cases, there's a massive switch in terms of the dynamic in the room. Mm -hmm. And then I, you can tell when it's like it goes from them kind of treating you like you can like have a normal conversation to a switch. And then, you know, you feel the the difference there. So I would say just a couple of times, um, not not often, but when it does happen, I notice it because it's it's a switch and kind of dynamic. Um, and I think it's just a look, it's not an inclusivity thing or anything like that. It's just it's not like, you know, it's just different for them. So it's just like it's just a different lens because they're not used to, you know, 15 year olds, you know, running companies and you know, being, you know, trying to be successful and really it's, it's new to them. So I think that's probably um, what it is, just kind of a uh, something they haven't seen before and they're just surprised by it. So. That's a very uh, amicable analysis of their reaction. But you did get involved with it successfully with a few accelerator programs, right? I think you were yeah. at Y Combinator. Yeah. Tell, tell me a bit about that experience. How did you get involved with them? 
Yeah, so I, I did YC Startup School. So not the YC Accelerator. That would be that'd be a different level. But I, I got to do YC Startup School, um, which is you know just a program you can do, talk with other founders. It's a really great network. Um, so I, I got to do that. Um, but hoping to, you know, applied for YC Winter 22 program. We'll, we'll see if I get in. Um, but that's, a, that's yeah, not the accelerator. That's just kind of, I get asked about that uh, a little bit. And that's, there's a slight differentiation there uh, with the two. Um, or Which, you know, it's different wording, but it's completely kind of different programs. Um, I've done, you know, in terms of other accelerators, I've done Propel ICT, which is a Halifax-based one. New Chip, which um, is online. I get a lot of people actually, I think I have a call after this with someone asking me to, you know, a lot of people reach out and ask about the program because it's pretty popular. And then Creative Destruction Lab, which I just did yesterday. I just pitched them session one yesterday. Really amazing program. I would suggest that everybody applies to Creative Destruction Lab because it's just such an amazing network. You get to be in front of, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs in uh, Atlantic Canada and in some cases kind of the U.S., um, which, you know, Atlantic Canada, we have investors and mentors there that are, you know, some are in Florida, some are in Vancouver, Toronto, all over the place that come and you get to talk with and they give you advice on their idea. And at the end of the day, they can pick to work with you and mentor you and then you can move on to kind of the next sessions. So that's how it works. And it's a, it's a really great program. What do you think are some of the kind of best learnings you took away from Creative Destructions Labs? Um, yeah, so a couple of things, I mean, uh, firstly, they kind of, we broke down value proposition and really like, I, I got a lot of feedback. Some of it is, you know, heck, strategic for me. So it's, uh, I, I have it written down. I don't have it all with me, but I think the biggest thing was just, they help on a more kind of general thing with founders. They really help you break down like your value proposition there and really help you kind of figure out, like really break down your idea and then build it up again. So they really like, cause Sometimes, like a lot of times, some companies, it's like it's a vaporware, like vapor, you know, a vapor company, right? Like you get into the inside and there's kind of nothing there. Um, it's so really breaking down the product, really figuring everything out and then helping you kind of build it back up in a way that you know stays on course of what you want to build. But it's just you know, a little bit different. And the great thing is you meet with 12 different mentors. So they all have different opinions and then you can take these 12 different opinions and figure out the best course you want to go. But they're all you know structured. Uh, opinions from from everybody so when you get 12 different opinions is are they all different and you have to just decide which one fits you or do you start to see themes like you know seven people said this would be great and only one person said that how do you what does that feel like yeah so you go from after those debates the 12 the, the talks to the 12 people you go to a large room and then everybody can chime in on your company and then that's where you see the patterns. You see like three people, you know, like seven people agreeing on he has to he has to go down this road, build out product, scale, you know, raise money. And then another person says, wait on building out product, do more customer discovery. And then you can kind of see like if nine people are agreeing on one thing, and then you have like one person, maybe that one person's advice is the best advice ever. Um, so you got to figure it out because you know sometimes you don't know right what if that one person has experience in b2b SaaS and everyone else doesn't right there's there's always experiences it's not always you know nine to one so the nine people are, are better but sometimes that can help you like kind of figure out okay you know this is what you know, most people are saying that's probably might be like the more kind of uh maybe the better road to go down it sounds like you have to trust your judgment a lot there like there's no there's no real answer but uh you have to find yeah. the path yourself. 
Yeah, it's like um, you're they they just give you paths to go down. That they they they're not in control of your company. Even if they're investors, they don't like they're not forcing you to go down any route there. But they're just you got to trust your judgment on things because at the end of the day, it's just guidelines, and you take everything everybody says. That's other advice. You take everybody, every single person says everything they all say with a grain of salt because at the end of the day, no, nobody knows what's the best route for your startup is but you. Um, and that's, you know, some people can give you really great advice, but, you know, you're not obliged, unless like they own 51% of your company, you're not obliged to take that advice and you're not forced to. Um, so, you know, really, no, or I guess nobody knows if your startup's going to succeed but you. Um, some other people might know have, have a better idea of how to run it, but you're like kind of the only one that decides if your company is going to succeed or fail. So really you know, focus on taking the best advice for you um, and not kind of the best advice for, for someone else. Speaking of advice, do you think that, do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs out there from your experience that you think is broadly applicable to people? Um, yeah, I mean, very broad advice. Being an entrepreneur sucks at, at times um it's really like it's very very honestly sometimes it's just really it's it's tough um and you're gonna get like a bunch of no's like so for this round for instance i reached out to over 1400 people um and out of those uh probably about 99 point like something percentage said no um you know, i got some people telling me it's a bad idea move on to the next one um like sort of thing like someone told me to go you know find other ideas and it's all like it's all, um, it's really take everything everyone says with a grain of salt. But as soon as you get the yeses, which you will eventually, it's like, it'll kind of, I think I've said this before, but like it, the yeses and like the wins always kind of overlap the bad. And you don't really like, I forget how many people like said no. I mean, that, that was just kind of a guess and an answer, but I forget what they said. But I, I do remember the people that believed in me and like that said yes and agreed on the vision. Um, and it's, it's just a numbers game at the end of the day. Like there's so much competition out there. The likelihood, maybe you're lucky and the first person you reach out to is the perfect investor for you, but most of them won't be. And you just got to find the people that eat, sleep and breathe, you know, the industry you're in and the product. Like I want to find people, let's say you're in the uh, uh, transportation and logistics industry. You want to find people that when they sit around on their porch at the end of the day, they talk about transportation and logistics. They talk about how to make that better. And those will be your investors. Um, and normally you won't find that in your local town unless you're like in a really big city, but normally got to go elsewhere and find people like do a big search and just find the communities that work really well for, for what you're doing. I'm guessing a lot of your kind of outreach has been virtual emails, calls, like things like that, especially in the pandemic. Have you tried different approaches with different people and like seen what works and what doesn't? Yeah. So cold emails, uh, I sent almost 200, and. 80, something like that, 380. So that was, that was like, you know, personalized email, reaching out to people one by one. Um, I also had an AI that was reached out to over 1100 people for me for just without me having to kind of do everything. It just found really smart people that would invest in my industry and already knew, which was kind of cool. Um, and then I, you know, cold called some people, cold called, you know, uh, reach out to people, what works really well. And I was like, I had, is a network effect and referrals that's probably the best yeah the best way to kind of get investors like i had a referral last week um or probably no probably two weeks ago i got referred to this this vc fund and then you know 
this uh, just yesterday they just committed to a round, which is crazy fast turnaround time. That's like a week and a half, and um, you know that's that's probably like the best. Uh, yeah, referrals are just awesome. Uh, that's probably my like the best way to go about fundraising is to get you know referrals, get people that build a great network. And then networks are easy to build on LinkedIn. You just re I just, when I first started, I just connected with as many people as I could and just built my network. Um, and then just use those referrals, talk to people, you know, have calls, um, you know, just meet with new people. And eventually everybody has kind of something to, to help you with. Um, and then everybody also knows someone that you don't know. So then they reach out to someone for you and then, you know, they might know an investor that you really want to reach out to. And if they can give you a referral that, the likelihood of them investing is a lot higher than you know, cold emails, cold calls, marketing, anything like that. You mentioned you connected with all these people on LinkedIn. Is that literally like you hit the connect button and don't talk to them? Or do you have something you want to say to each of these people when you connect? Like, How do you build that relationship? For instance, I love, love LinkedIn, but I also I don't love especially because I'm younger, I, I find it sometimes a little strange that I get reached out to a lot of people to, you know, different softwares, but I get it's part of the hustle and grind to reach out to a, a bunch of people on LinkedIn. That's not, I normally don't just add someone and immediately send them a message. I'll like, you know, add someone, I'll send them kind of a message when I'm adding them sometimes and be like, you know, with uh, one of my advisors, for instance, I had to reach out to him here. I'm just going to go on our LinkedIn feed and I'll tell you kind of exactly what I said because it was, it was pretty interesting. And yeah, I essentially just reached out, said, you know, 15 year old founder, working on a startup and would love to get your advice from someone who has a lot more experience as an entrepreneur. And then you know, he reached out, we set up a call and then we were able to now, since then he's been a really great kind of mentor and friend, just a really awesome guy. But that was, I think that was back, that was back in May. So just about eight months, six, eight, six to eight months ago. Um, and that was, you know, that, yeah, that, that was pretty interesting. And I think kind of just, reaching out like that and you're going to, a lot of people aren't going to respond to you, but the ones you meet, um, even the ones you meet, some of them might not be a fit for you. Some of them might be like, you know, maybe not the right person for your industry, but just keep meeting new people and you'll know, try to, I try to do, you know, at least a call a week with a new person. Um, some people do way more than that. Some people do like three or four. Um, but just kind of meeting new people and building that network. If it's either on LinkedIn or if it's, uh, mostly it's on LinkedIn, but just like, send them kind of a nice message and you no know, ask to me there's the worst thing you can get is no. And then you're back to where you are right now. So it doesn't, it never hurts to ask. Yeah. You can't go backwards. You can only go yeah. forwards. You mentioned your, your funding a few times. So you're in the middle of a pre-seed funding round. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, closer to the end now, we've just the, the infamous 51% to get that is always tough. We're at 52 now. So we just breached that, which is great. Um, and, uh, you know, we're hoping to, and we've been getting some really great traction, and I think that we'll probably close in the next couple of weeks, uh, but at least by the end of the month, be fully done. We had a really optimistic timeline to close a funding round in two months, which is very tight. Like most startups take some six to nine months to raise funding, especially pre-seed round, which is always the hardest. So we said two months, we'll close. Um, right now we're two months and three days, and we're almost done. We'll, we'll be done soon. And getting to 51% is always the hardest. So for us, it was really great. In two months, we hit you know, 50, uh, I think we we're at 42% in two months. And then and we just got to 52 kind of this week. So then we were able to kind of break that and get past that. But um, that's where we are right now. This is our, our second funding round. We raised 
guess uh, at that time it was just me, but you know, I raised 65,000 US um, almost just in last September. And then you know, now we're in, uh, we're going to wrap this up in November. So just about 14 months later, we're going to close our second funding round. For people who don't know much about funding, what is this 51% that you keep describing? In a funding round, when I'm raising, you know, 100 grand, or that that's a good number. So 100K, I would, you know, uh, you get amounts committed. So normally, unless you're lucky, 100K is not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things in fundraising. Um, and probably in that case, you can just get one guy that gives you 100 grand. But, you know, I get 51% describes the amount committed. So to your round, it's always the hardest to get 51% because at 51%, there's only less, right? After that point, you, you have to raise, you know, you, you just pass the uphill part and now you're, it's all downhill from there. So it's the first commitment is going to be the hardest because no one wants to invest or not no one, but it's tough to get someone to invest in a company that hasn't gotten any other investors. People like to bandwagon a lot of the time. Um, and then once you get past kind of that, um, that, that 51% committed, you only have 49 left. So you have less than what you've raised before left in your round. And then it's easier to get people. You go to someone and say, we have you know, 50% committed or 51% committed. Now we have you know 62 and then it gets easier and easier from there because um, it's just less money to give. But when you go to people and say, I have 2.1% committed, um, it's a lot harder to get those commitments in. And like, you know, as much as, you know, you have to start somewhere. So I'm not saying it's like impossible, but normally those first people are going to be people you like know or have some sort of relationship with because those are kind of the, going to be the first people even vcs you have some sort of relationship with because it's very tough for them to commit you know zero unless you're yc and yc you know has done you know, deals with just an idea and they've given them 125 grand but the yc is kind of a, a different thing and it's just a really awesome kind of organization but um they're kind of a different on a different level yc meaning y combinator that we talked about earlier so let's say you do a pre-seed round you have to stay up front what you're trying to get say it's a hundred thousand is that right um i mean you don't have to like some people it's good too though because if you don't set a goal normally it's a it's a thin balance because it's a lot of experimenting so when we started off we were going to raise 450k um then we grew that to one and a half million bucks then we realized that's very tough to raise at a pre-seed round that's like y combinator you know massive kind of silicon valley level to raise a one and a half million pre-seed so then we dropped down to 450 and then we realized like it's a lot of experimenting then we dropped our valuation to two and a half million and then we decided to raise 250k to two and a half million so um that was kind of it's a lot of jumping around experimenting and figuring out what works best for you and what the market is telling you because at the end and at the end of the the market will tell you you know what works for you and what what doesn't um but when when we talk about kind of you know so yes, you kind of you always have to say what your ask is. No one wants you to say like we're raising a pre-seed. We don't know how much money we want to raise. Your valuation, you don't have to state. Actually, a uh, smart move. A lot of founders should just not state it because at the end of the day, uh, when you're really early stage, you should. But when you get later stage, you're only negotiating against yourself at that point. Like someone might think you're worth ten times what you think you're worth. So you're better just to you know ask for a million bucks and then say you know whatever valuation you think is fair, they come back to you. That might backfire though. Take take everything I say with a grain of salt too, because you might get a one million for fifty percent offer, and then that's also not where you want to be. But hopefully, normally it it works kind of in your favor because it 
maybe keep whatever you think you're worth in the back of your head as kind of a, a sounding board, but it, it will sometimes kind of help you in your favor because, uh, you know, you're not negotiating against yourself. But that money for us is going to help, you know, really just expedite our growth, build out our team some more. Uh, it's really going into growth um, and, you know, product. So that that's kind of what, what that money, money's going to do. Um, in terms of kind of, yeah, that's um, it's when you're figuring that out, just kind of a little bit more general when you are figuring that out. For us, it just, it was like mapping out what do we need to get where? Like, you can't just say I'm going to go out and raise 250 without kind of figuring it out because you think that's a good number. Um, a lot goes into it. Like, where is that money going to go? How much burn do I have? What am I losing per month? How much am I spending on this? You know, what what is salaries? And also, what do I need to go from zero to one, then from one to 10, then from you know, 10 to a million? So that's kind of where, that's how you map out how much you want to raise. It's just figuring out what the milestones you want to hit are and how you're going to hit them. You can't, but you also got to figure out, you got to be reasonable with your milestones. You can't say, you know, we're going to go from zero to 20 million bucks. So I need a 20 million bucks in revenue. So I need a $200 million pre-seed round. It has to go in stages. Um, you can raise like multiple rounds in a year. Some people raise multiple rounds in like six months and just grow like crazy. But you got to have those milestones, raise money, hit the milestones, and then raise more money or maybe you have enough revenue that you can just kind of self-sustain yourself. What does the future look like for Frenta and, and how are you planning for that other than funding? Um, yeah, so our, our vision uh, for us is really about powering the circular economy and powering kind of economies around the world. So it starts with, you know, powering rental stores. We're going to launch, you know, our full, full launches in January for our, our B2B platform. And that's, you know, we're going to launch in January as a vertical SaaS platform that's going to be revolutionizing the rental industry. Um, right. And then we go from there, we build up, we start offering other services and eventually we just want to be, you know, powering, you know, the sharing economy in every single way we can. Um, and it starts with SaaS and evolves to other things and we'll see what happens when we get there. We kind of know what we want to do, but for right now, that's kind of our, it's, uh, it's at kind of the back burner right now because our focus really is, uh, the software part of it and building that out and, and launching and building clients and growing revenue. And that's kind of what we're trying to do right now. Do you think your path to profitability is clear for you? Yeah, I mean, we've done you know financial projections. We know kind of what our burn is and when we'll we'll break that. At the end of the day, most startups, if you're making money in your first year, you're not doing it right. You should you shouldn't be losing billions a year. I'm not saying that, but you should just keep reinvesting in growth. Like you you shouldn't in a startup world. Depending on it's easy for me to say because I don't have those kind of you know life costs for things, um, and I don't have kind of um, those type of costs associated with it, but it's, you should just keep reinvesting and growing your startup. Um, instead of like paying yourself really larger salaries and bonuses, eventually you should start doing that when you start scaling your startup, but just keep reinvesting in growth and keep scaling, hire more people, build more tech and keep growing. I think that's kind of the typical, you know, path of profitability. And then eventually once you scale fast enough and high enough, then you can switch to a more lenient growth path that makes you super profitable. I think that's a normal kind of Silicon Valley scaling path. And that's kind of what we were going to, the, the plan of attack that we were going after. Other than financial return for your investors, which is obviously a big part of being venture-backed company, what does success mean for you? Yeah, I mean, I think 
money is awesome. You know, money's great. I think that we always got to figure out what's the, the goal we want to do. Um, you know, and what, what are we, what are we really passionate about? I've loved the sharing economy. So for me, just being a part of that growth and being a part of this movement where hopefully we'll, you know, reduce our carbon footprint through sharing. I think that's like, uh, really kind of what success means to me. Frenter becomes, you know, the largest and, and, you know, best sharing economy, you know, powering platform, but no powering company in the world. And I think, you know, we make a difference when it comes to reducing carbon footprint and, and really help kind of, you know, change the world. I think that's kind of, you know, where I'm, where my head is focused on. Um, and I think that again, kind of goes back and we, when we talked about vision and what you know, I'm focused on, that's, that's where my focus is. And of course, you know, you build something amazing, money will come. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, that that's easy for me to say, you know, now that I haven't hit that level yet, we'll see what happens in, you know, five, 10 years. But you no, know, for me right now, it's really just, you know, let, let's build something really great and see where this goes is there anything maybe you're most afraid of or that you think will be your biggest barrier to success whenever i've learned that whenever you have a challenge for things it goes back to kind of my mentality of always finding someone that knows better than me um and as long whenever there's a challenge i just find the guy that can solve that for us so i get this question a lot and i find that you know whenever we have an issue whenever it's a financial issue whenever it's you know, an issue with growth or a question about how do we you know, solve this customer discovery problem, I you know, try to use the net great network of people that I have um, to, to find a solution for that. All right. There are no problems, only solutions. Exactly. What is something unique you think you would never have learned if you hadn't started Frenter? Man, I mean, I think the when I started, I always thought that startups were overnight successes. Um, and what I've learned is it's, you know, a 20 year uh 20 year process bottled into what looks like an overnight success because all you see are are you see all the all you see are the positive things right no news is bad news in the startup world and great news you nobody announces they're going out of business right but or until that gets out larger companies you see that but like with startups so that's one thing another thing just on customer discovery um, I think a big thing when I started was I thought that was useless. Research was you know, dumb. You build something, you scale, and you work on it. Um, I'm still about building something quickly, getting to market, and learning from your customers. But I've learned a lot more that it is learning from your customers. You don't just build solutions that people will tailor themselves to. You got to build a product that tailors to people, and you can build it out quickly and start the development process and then you know, launch it. But big thing I've learned is customer discovery and research and just building a team. I think, no, uh, I don't, I have a lot more wisdom to, to get on my life, but I think that for me, you know, getting that building a team and building really smart people around me is really kind of a, a key part in um, being successful. Awesome. So where can people go to find out more about you and Frenta? Yeah. I mean, if people want to reach out, I have .com. They can contact me if they have any questions or you no, know, investment opportunities, partnership opportunities, all that sort of thing. I have a website there. Um, I think my email's on there too. Um, and then from there, it shows my company website, our LinkedIn, Crunchbase, um, AngelList, pitch, PitchBook, all sort of, all that sort of stuff is uh, is in there. So ZacharyLaBerge.com. Great. We'll link that site in the show notes. Zach, thanks so much. This has been an amazing conversation. I hope to hear more about your success in the future. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hey, listeners, if you love the show, please do like, share, follow, subscribe, tell your friends, however you want to interact with us. It really helps the show. Thanks a lot. Have a great day and see you next time.